Welcome to the Morning Huddle, where business, healthcare, and lifestyle meet. This platform is designed to educate and equip business-minded training healthcare professionals to become the leaders in an evolving healthcare landscape. We are your hosts, Dr. Jermaine Fetty and student Dr. Kamal Smith. Today, we have a conversation with Dr. Michael Jerkins, CEO of Panacea Bank. We dive deep on how you can best manage your finances, reduce debt, and create the financial future you've always dreamed of. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome back to the Morning Huddle. We have a special guest today here, Dr. Michael Jerkins, uh, the founder and co-founder and president of Tennessee Financial. We're going to get into a, a very high-level conversation. I'm going to a lot of different topics. Uh, this is going to be one of those talks that uh, we're going to say refer back to uh, over and over because it's going to be so action-packed. You know, I want to make sure we get the best information uh, to everyone here so we can continue to make strong decisions financially that allows us to be our best white coat. Um, I'll let you take it away from here, Dr. Michael Jerkins. you want to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thank you. It's uh, very exciting to get to chat with you all today. Uh, I am a practicing physician, so I do internal medicine and pediatrics. Um, actually just got done seeing patients. That's why I was running a little bit late today. Um, but also, as you mentioned, uh, co-founder and president of Panacea Financial, we're a national digital bank that's just for doctors. And I could probably talk all day about why we are founded, but I'm sure many of the listeners can relate to being a doctor or doctor in training and having financial frustrations having people feel like they don't understand what it's like to become a doctor and all of the sacrifices we make. And then you try to interact with banks or other financial institutions and they look at you on paper and they don't think you're a trustworthy borrower or they see all the student debt and they have a, uh, they raise an eyebrow at you. And it's, and then all of us know in the back of our minds, as soon as we start making a lot of money, all those same people are going to start begging for our business. And I personally had a lot of financial frustrations in medical school. We had our first child, uh, high deductible insurance plan of $7,500. Then straight in, I was making no money, straight into residency. We had our second child, super happy, of course, but uh, came with a lot of expenses. Um, And, you know, I I applied for a personal loan in residency um, my second year of residency. And I was told basically by multiple banks, either no or yes, go get a co-signer and we'll give you a couple of thousand dollars and charge you a high interest rates, which is pretty absurd when you think about literally that same day, I'm in the ICU making sure people don't die, trusted a lot. But then later that day, I'm not trusted with $2,000 and told to go get my dad to sign on a loan. So there's a big disconnect with what doctors are trusted with, not financially, and then what people trust us with financially. And that's really where Panacea Financial started. So a friend of mine in residency, Dr. Ned Palmer and I, we basically went on a mission to try to get something better for doctors and doctors in training. And fast forward a couple of years, now we got about 30, almost close to 3,400 doctor, uh, doctors that we've helped nationwide um, across all 50 states with anything from a personal loan, savings account, a loan for uh, buying into a practice or buying a practice or refinancing student loans. We've done all of it. And we did it in a way that was accessible to doctors on our schedule. As I mentioned, I'm late to this podcast because I'm seeing patients. Well, guess what? 
when I walked out of that clinic today, all the banks, normal banks are closed. I can't call them. I don't can't go into the branch. But the way we designed it was you have a banker that is yours, that knows you and knows you by name that you can call, email or text. So you can be a first year dental student with five bucks in your checking account or a pediatric dentist making a lot of money and you still get the same quality service because that's what I think we deserve as doctors and doctors in training. So like I said, I could talk a long time about what we did and why we did it, but um, I'm happy to be here today and get to have this conversation with you guys. Yeah, we appreciate you being here. I want to dive right into the types of loans that are available um, specifically for um, students or, or very new, newly graduated um, dentists and doctors. Um, so if you're a, a fourth year dental or medical student, what type of loans are available to you? Yeah, so we, uh, I think, are pretty unique in what we're able to, to do. And that's actually one of our first things we did was uh, develop what we call a PRN personal loan, which, of course, anyone that's treating patients knows what PRN means. It's also a little dog whistle to all those folks um, to understand that it's a loan for you to use as needed. And we lend to fourth year dental students, medical students, veterinary students up to $15,000 with uh, no minimum credit score, with no cosigner requirement at all. We're not gonna ask you for a cosigner. Um, and we can fund those in as little as a day. And those interest rates start at less than half of a normal credit card. So we tried to uh, basically allow a student to be able to avoid credit card debt if they had some unexpected life cost, or if they needed to apply to residency and travel for interviews or travel to move to their residency with no income to have access to money instead of having to borrow from friends and family or again, put it on a high interest credit card. Um, and sometimes what we have is we'll have dental students use it to consolidate high interest credit card debt, pay that off into a lower interest loan that also lowers their credit utilization on their credit score and can sometimes cause that credit score bump. So. Um, as far as I know, I don't know of any other bank that, you know, just says, hey, fourth year dental student, no minimum credit score, no co-signer, we trust you, here's a loan at less than half a credit card, um, and done all digitally with customer service around your uh, schedule. I don't know of, of anyone else that does that. And, and so for the fourth year dental student, that's really our main, main product is that, is what we call a PRN, personal loan. Got it, got it. And how do the interest rates for those loans compare to uh, federal loans? So, you know, these are a little bit different in the sense that these are unsecured personal loans. Um, and the federal loans that we classically think about are uh, student loans. So it's kind of a different category altogether. Um, and so what I would say, again, for an unsecured personal loan, the, the biggest kind of apples to apples comparison we think about is credit cards, which is essentially an unsecured uh, line of credit. Um, and, you know, that is right now, I think at 23% is the average credit card uh, interest rate. And again, ours is is right now less than half of that is what we're starting off with for the personal loan, the PRN personal loan. And to put it in perspective, right now, a mortgage, which is backed by an actual asset, a house, right now is like between seven and seven and a half percent. So, whereas if you had asked me that, Three years ago, obviously mortgage rates were crazy low, um, and so right now, you know, I've had some people that that have asked me, "Hey, y'all's rates have gone up," 
And it's, it's true, their rates have gone up all over the place with auto loans, mortgages, practice loans, student loan refinance, and that's just the way the economy is right now. But back to your original question, again, our personal loans, what we try to do is make sure they're less than half of the credit card. Um, and uh, we've been successful at that. So it's accessible and you're not gonna continue to snowball. The other thing I mentioned, um, I forgot to, is we know dental students and medical students are making money, right? So we, um, for, the, for the students, uh, charge $0 payments for a year. And after that, it's interest only. Uh, for at least why if you're in training and you want to continue with interest only. So it's very accessible for those folks who are moving to residency, applying, consolidating high interest credit cards. We got zero dollars uh, for those fourth year dental students for, for a year after they originate the loan. Well, one topic that I know that a lot of students are, are thinking about right now is the, the Biden student forgiveness. Mm -hmm. um, so what are your thoughts on the Biden student forgiveness and how is that going to impact dental students. Sure. Um, so that's a big topic. I'll try to break it down to two big changes that the Biden administration has made, one of which is this cancellation. So it was $10,000 for anyone making less than $125,000, $20,000 if you've also received a Pell Grant. Um, and that was launched. People were applying for it. And then, of course, there was legal challenges. And as we speak yesterday, there were, the, I think, the first oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court on this cancellation. Is it legal? Is it going to be uh, allowed to pass? And I think based on what we're hearing from the justices' questions and from the political climate is that it's very likely that the cancellation will not happen. So the $10,000 or $20,000 will probably not happen. Now, for most of us listening to this or that have uh, trained to be a doctor, $10,000 is awesome, right? But it's not, it's not going to make a drop in the bucket for the average dental or medical student. Um, so that's one half. That's, that's, that's the part that's really gotten most of the news. But really, the other side of it is what's more important and more impactful for, for people listening. And that's the um, change in income-driven repayment plans by the Biden administration that are supposed to take effect into the summer. So it's hard because I normally have a whiteboard and I want to, uh, my desire is normally to go to whiteboards <laughs> using a, a, a dry erase marker. So I have to do this verbally as best I can, but essentially income driven repayment plans allow you to have an affordable plan for federal student loans. And the way they calculate how much you owe per month is based on your family size, um, is based on how much money you make and um, and how much money you make, it's actually your adjusted grossing. So, so anything post-tax is what you're actually being um, calculated on. And what the Biden administration has done with IDR, income driven repayments, is allowed for basically um, the calculation will come out to most people's uh, monthly payment will be lower. Um, and uh, they also provide more interest subsidies. So what that means is, let's say, Let's say you have $1,000 a month uh, student loan payment and uh, $500 of that is interest. I'm just making up numbers here. And your income driven repayment is only $250 a month. So you pay $250, but you didn't pay that extra interest of $250 in this example. What this administration is proposing is that they will cover the rest of your unpaid interest for that month. 
So that's a huge deal. If you think about over the life of a loan, if the government is going to be uh, covering 100% of unpaid interest on an IDR plan, specifically repay. And so it makes it more affordable. It provides interest uh, subsidies. And, you know, as someone who obviously we run a company that does student loan refinance, there is growing uh, smaller and smaller the cases for people to refinance out of the federal system. Um, so you have to have a real good reason to not be in the federal system because you can have lower monthly payments. And I'll talk about why that matters for practice ownership later. You can have potential forgiveness, right? The forgiveness part for IDR is after 20 to 25 years. So you can get your loans forgiven if you pay on them in the IDR for 20 to 25 years. Um, and so like that is the, honestly the biggest change the Biden administration has proposed, but is getting the least amount of headlines because it's it's not it's not good clickbait. I mean, that was super boring. Probably you listening to me. Imagine someone trying to explain that on the news or on Twitter. No one's clicking on that link. But actually, it's what matters more to people listening. So if I can ask you a quick question on it, um, basically, um, me, I'm looking at the numbers and I'm trying to figure out how does this all make sense? I'm looking at when the news first was announced and I'm looking at where we are now. And from following on your website, because you have transparency rates, we can see exactly how much it will be for interest rates. They have literally doubled in that amount of time. So in, in a way, people are in a place of purgatory because they don't know, should they refinance? Should they stay here? Like what would affect them most? And with people who have higher amounts of student loan debt, interest rate matters even more. 10,000, like you said, would be fantastic. But when we're talking about the difference between three and a half or 7% interest over an entire year, it's, it's a pretty big deal. So for students who are in that place of purgatory, who know they have higher amounts, and they don't know, should I, should I keep waiting to refinance? And hopefully they, they get this entire thing figured out. Or should I go ahead and pull the trigger now because I know I'm going to pay later? What's yeah. the best advice you can give somebody who is weighing a $10,000 decision on a yearly basis? Yeah. So, you know, right now, of course, at least at the time of this recording, the interest rates have, are at 0% for the federal student loans. And they have been since the CARES Act in 2020 when the COVID pandemic hit. So you haven't been accumulating interest. And, you know, I think that's obviously a big deal. So people haven't wanted to refi. like, well, how can I get lower than 0%? <laughs> you can't. So most people didn't refi because they were just like, hey, I'm going to ride this out. I'm going to take my 0%. And whenever it comes back on, I'll make a decision then. Well, what happened? What happened was all the rates that you could refi at, to your point, have more than doubled all across all the companies. So all these people that delayed a decision missed an opportunity to refi and, and save a ton of money. Because what's gonna happen is that when and if, I say if, the, the federal student loans turn back on and interest rates turn back on is uh, the rates that you're gonna get at like Panacea or SoFi or all these refi companies is gonna be real high. And it might not make sense for them. And the biggest deal, I tell this people all the time to kind of simplify it is if you refi into a private company like Panacea, SoFi, pick a, pick a company, you can't go back. So you can't then go back and take advantage of the income-driven repayment. You can't take advantage of forgiveness. You can't take advantage of if there's another major disaster, hopefully there isn't, then turning it back to zero. You can't benefit from that. 
So my um, basic advice is if you aren't 100% sure that you're never going to use the federal benefits of those things I've listed, if you're, if, if you're not sure and you're riding the fence, I would stay safe, stay in the federal system. You can always make that decision later because there's a lot of benefits you're giving up that you'll never have the opportunity to get again if you refi out of it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, my next question is, what do you think that students can be doing right now to prepare themselves um, financially um, to be successful following graduation? What type of habits can they start to instill now that will help help them um, to be able to um, just start their careers in a great place financially? Yeah, I think um, it's there's a couple of things. One is just simple making of a budget. It's tough when you're on student loans and you kind of have a blank check, so to speak, um, and maybe you borrow more than you actually need um, and you live maybe above your means because you always have the student loans to go back on. So number one, create a budget, learn how to live within a budget. Number two, I think it's really helpful to have a student loan plan. Um, I mentioned all sorts of complexities here on this podcast already. You need to find someone who knows what they're talking about that is a student loan um, consultant and they can help you navigate your plan because not every wealth advisor you're going to talk to, and there's plenty of them that say they work with doctors and they'll have clip art, not clip art, what am I trying to say, stock photography of a doctor on their website, but then you talk to them about student loans, they don't know anything. That's not a doctor wealth advisor. That's not a doctor um, financial advisor. You got to find someone who can help you develop a plan for the student loans. Um, I think, to, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, is understand home ownership and understand practice ownership and start to mentally think about this all while you're trying to build up clinical experience and kind of kind of get um, at least that under your belt some. And, you know, when you're expecting or, or thinking about big pay increases, you're going to try to live like you lived as a student as long as you can. Keep your expenses low. Don't go buy the house that's ginormous uh, just because you finally got your paycheck. Don't go buy the boat or the car, all this, these things that will decrease your monthly cash flow and increase your monthly debt service payments. And we'll talk about why that matters, because I think one of the biggest mistakes I see in young doctors, both medical, dental, and vet, is we get out, we've been waiting all this time, all of our friends we went to undergrad with are, you know, they've done all this stuff. And finally, we get that paycheck and the urge, it's so hard, we feel like we deserve it, which we, we do. And but you got to fight the urge and be able to understand your long term financial goals, live below your means, have a budget and be able to you're going to have to save more than the average uh, person your age that graduated. Um, you know, whenever whatever age you're at when you graduate dental school is different from what that same age person is doing that didn't go to dental school. You got to save more than they do um, to catch up. So you got to build in the savings, which I think goes into the budgeting aspect. That's, that's great advice. And one thing that really sticks out to me is finding a financial advisor and an individual that is very knowledgeable in student loans and working with doctors. What type of questions would you advise students asking potential financial advisors to really differentiate the financial advisors that are knowledgeable in that area versus the ones that are not? Yeah, so I think the first thing is what is your advice on federal student loan repayment plans? What's, what's your advice? And if they start fumbling and they don't even know what the acronyms are, then that's a red flag. 
<clears throat> another easy one is to say, hey, tell me another dentist that you've worked with as a referral so you can call and ask them. If they don't have any, that's a red flag. Um, and ask them about what's their opinion on the um, you know, latest on the news. If they're not keeping up with what's going on with, not the cancellation, that's easy. You can read a tweet and know what's going on with that. The IDR stuff, ask them what's going, what's their opinion. And if they don't know, that's a red flag. But I do think the easiest thing to say is, hey, can you give me a name of a referral of a dentist you've worked with that specifically has had student loans and can I talk with them? And I think that's that's very powerful, really with anything, but especially with this, it's very powerful. Sure. I think that's really important because especially as fourth years, there's a lot of financial advisors um, starting to reach out to us, asset management companies, and um, ev everyone is saying some of the same thing. So being able to um, give students the knowledge to be able to say, these are the questions that you should ask to be, to be able to make sure that the person guiding you is somebody that can guide you in the right direction. And, and one other thing I'd like to add to, I would say, if you're asking or finding someone who's a financial advisor, you want to ask if they're a fiduciary or not. Do they have a legal obligation to actually do what's in your best interest, as opposed to someone who is making money by trading stocks in your name that simply is getting fees by moving money A to B and switching hands and they get a piece every single time. That is not necessarily in your best interest. And that's also somebody who might not care what you do with your student loans as long as you put in money in their brokerage account that they're investing your money in. So asking if they're a fiduciary is also really important too. Definitely. I think that's really important, making sure that their interest is aligned with your best interest. Like you want, you want to have a financial advisor when you're making money, they're making money, not they're just making money for being there. Exactly. That, that makes a lot of sense. And my last question for you before we kind of pass it over to Jermaine for the doctor side of things is what other products does your company specifically offer um, that, that is for students? Yep. So we have totally free checking, totally free checking and high yield savings accounts. So, and that's all on mobile banking and online banking and our, and our online checking account. One of the things we decided at the very beginning was uh, we wanted to make ATMs free. So no matter where you move, no matter where you go to an ATM, all those fees are refunded to you at the end of each month. So you're not going to have to pay any fees on the ATMs. Uh, high yield savings, you know, we're, I think nine times around that, the national average of high yield savings rate. So if you're building up an emergency fund, uh, things like that, it's better to put that in a high yield savings account instead of a checking account earning no interest. Um, so you earn that extra interest on a high yield savings account. It's a good place to build up some savings. Um, and that's accessible to dental students. And all while um, you get that, you also get that we call a primary care banker. Everybody gets their own banker. I mentioned it earlier, how accessible they are. But every dental student, if you just have five bucks in your checking account to, you know, a loan customer, et cetera, everybody gets that access to someone they can pick up the phone and call and they actually know who you are. They speak the language. They understand doctors because that's that's all we do. That's good. Perfect. Perfect. Um, one thing I definitely like to continue to think about is, as uh, Kamal has spoken about, a lot of people are going to be uh, bumping and rubbing shoulders with you. Um, as you're continuing to get closer and closer to that finish line, if you're not already there, you're already at the finish line, you're already there. But the biggest thing, advice I could personally give is start to build relationships before you actually need to execute. That would give you a good opportunity to get and know and meet individuals so y'all can meet on a different level. So when it needs to go 
to a higher level, at least you have some type of level of familiarity. I know for myself, even when I was finishing up my fourth year in dental school, I ended up opening uh, bank accounts at about seven or eight different banks because I needed to know who's going to be responsive, right? Who was going to be, who's going to have competitive high yield interest savings account rates, right? Who am I going to be able to move money freely with? Who am I going to be able to get a replacement debit card if need be, right? These are the kind of things you want to start figuring out before you actually need it because when you actually need it, it might be a little too late. So there's never any harm in, in opening up multiple bank accounts, especially if, if one is free, to at least get a, a nice good feel and see, is this a possible uh, relationship that we can carry moving into the future? So when we're going to hop into the doctor side uh, and really move into the, the intricacies of your institution. So you're a physician, I'm a dentist. Can you break down what it looks like um, as far as your mix between your dentist and your physicians, how does the debt load different, differ between a medical doctor and a dentist? Great, great question. So um, even in the medical side, it's different uh, with the allopathic or MD schools and the osteopathic or the DO schools. In fact, the last numbers I've seen <clears throat> is that for MDs, when they graduate, they graduate with around $200,000 of student loans. The DO schools or the students that graduate have about $250,000 in student loans. So there's already disparity within the medical graduates too. And then of course there, uh, you're going to residency. Most people aren't paying on them. They're doing IDR with little to no payments, builds up over time. I mean, for instance, just full transparency, I graduated with $250,000 in student loans. By the time I was done with my four-year residency, it was about $300,000 in student loans. So, um, you know, the extra training with the extra interest buildup is a big deal on the medical side. Now, on the dental side, it's around that two hundred fifty dollars to $300,000 mark when people graduate, except, of course, those people who do a residency in dentistry. Big difference is in medicine, we get paid. In all of our residencies, we get paid. In dentistry, obviously, that's not the case. So those people who have to pay to go to orthodontics residency or, or name whatever it is, we see a lot higher student loans from the dental specialists, especially because they had to pay for a residency. Um, so that's a, that's a big difference. And you know, on the dentistry side, it's a lot more common to get into business uh, or practice ownership. Um, the opportunities are a lot more fruitful for dentists than it is for medical, just because of all of the issues with insurance on the medical side, it's a lot more complicated. A lot, a lot simpler for, for dentists and frankly for veterinarians as well. So the opportunities for practice ownership are greater on dentistry. I think by and large, most people that graduate dental school have a little bit more business knowledge than medical because you know, especially in medical school, you're just trying to get to residency and, and graduate. You're not thinking about your specialty or even being a practice owner yet because you got years ahead of training still. Um, and so for us, what we really set out to do is like I mentioned earlier about our personal owner, we wanted to make things accessible and, and, and common sense. That's really it. We want accessible and common sense. And I can tell you story after story of friends of mine, or customers that we've had that have had nightmares dealing with other banks when they tried to explain, well, how come you're 35 and you have a thin credit file, meaning you haven't done much with your credit? You're 35, how come your debt to income ratio is so bad? And it's, it's really frustrating to have to sit and explain that to someone who doesn't even understand what it took for me to get to where I'm at 
and why I should like, even the fact I'm trying to convince you is irritating. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we try to keep that in mind, be common sense approach. We understand that uh, student debt's not a red flag. We understand that our community did a lot to get to where they are. And so that's why we try to make things a little bit more common sense. And on the practice ownership side, um, I think we are especially very flexible and common sense. I mean, a big bank, big bank that everyone sees on their street corner, you know, they got 18 layers of bureaucracy that touches your practice loan application. That can take weeks and weeks and 10 different people touching it and talking about it. For us, we're leaner. That's all we do as doctors and all we do is practice ownership. Last year, actually, after we got all the package of someone that applied for a loan for their practice, it took us five days to, to approve or disapprove and tell the, the customer why. And so we understand the accessibility again, like our time is probably our biggest, most valuable currency as doctors. We don't have a lot of it. So we want to value that. We want to be fast with our decisions because, I mean, you can speak to this, of course, but when you're trying to open up a practice, time time can really kill that deal um, of you being in, in that clinic, uh, starting to see patients. So we want to do things that are, that are fast and, and convenient for doctors. enjoyed part one of our conversation with Dr. Michael Jerkins, CEO of Panacea Bank. We hope you found this to be insightful and learned something from today's episode, and we look forward to seeing you next time for part two. Peace.